Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. Uh, I see. I noticed you're wearing a hat, and I was gonna say, did you did you watch any uh, baseball uh, today or yesterday? I didn't watch it today, but I watched the I watched the marathon yesterday. That was fun. Did you see? Uh, God, fucking Martin had so much pie tar up under his hat. It was so noticeable. <laughs> which one? Which one was Martin? He was the uh, reliever. Oh that, yeah, that came okay. in. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. He was he was in there today, and I was like, Jesus Christ! Like you could just see it glistening up under there. And I'm like, that's funny. like friend of the pod, Cameron. You know, I was like, did he have under like under his cap, like under the the brim? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's where they they either hide it there or like on their forearms sometimes. I mean, they don't ever get in trouble for it, even though it's against the rules technically. But yeah, um, yeah, they don't really. I don't. I I don't think they're. I haven't seen like a pine tar. Penalty probably in like two or three years. Like the yeah. guy, the the umpire called the pitcher up, and it was like it was just all over his fucking hands. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. What is, it was like, what is this shit? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I was uh, I was listening to the podcast Talking Baseball. It's the John Boy podcast, mm-hmm. and one of the guys on there he was talking about it, and he, he used to be a player, and he was saying that uh, he was Trevor Plouffe, right? He said that oh, yeah. um, he said it's hilarious because you like watch the guys come out. He's like, I think you should just like allow them to swim laps in it and then come out and be dripping with pine tar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, cause everyone does it. Like there's a, there's that video of, um, was that like fat little Korean guy from the Dodgers, that pitcher? He, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, his hat was just basically nothing but pine tar. <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah, that's not, are we recording right now? Yeah. I, I went ahead and started recording. Okay. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I saw the. Uh, I saw up until I can't remember who scored first uh, today. I think what uh, was it uh, Ozuna that scored for the Braves today? No, he scored. He scored the second set of runs, I think. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember who scored first. But I just remember I saw the Ozuna score live, and then I had to go to uh, the. Uh, I had to go to the Kroger and uh, send my rent uh, to my landlord for the month. So. Yeah. Um, I just got back from doing that. And I have a I have a cool story to tell you. Well, I mean not really a cool story, but I was kind of like in a I was in a scramble this past week because we went to this um we went to this national monument down in Las Cruces mm-hmm. and uh I took a capital with me because I thought I was gonna read it on the way yeah. um, down there. And so I took capital with me and uh, I left it in my book while we were out wandering around and one of my water bottles started leaking and it got all over my capital book. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like to the point of ruin, like, like the, the second half of the pages were, like, completely soaked. So I had to go to Barnes & Noble, and thankfully they had the uh, Penguin Classics edition. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, yeah. So I had, to, I had to buy that one. It's, uh, that thick boy. I, yeah. No, it's um, it, it's not it's it's not just Capital, right? Like, that – like, that – because that – there's no way that that edition is just the main text because our – the, the, Here, let me show you the appendix in a lot of the uh, – so this is the appendix in the back of the book. Uh-huh. After the uh, after his last chapter about uh, uh, primitive accumulation. So here is I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. But this this section this is just the appendix. Damn. <laughs> so this is. What's the, he, how much is the introduction? Oh okay, yeah, the introduction is like a hundred and. Okay, so here's here's the introduction, just that much right there, and then and then where we are in relative to this this edition is where that paper is. Yeah, so that's crazy. But, yeah, it's about it's about two and a half inches thick. God. Yeah. Yes. So um, well, I, okay, so I wanted to start off today. Um, so I wanted to do two things: talk about what we've been reading besides Capital, like we've been doing, and then also I want to talk mm. about. Uh, because the the regular pod talked about it, but I want to ask, uh, you know, the book club pod. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, well, first I'll say this. I'll say um, I think everyone should read um, this book by Guy Debord called Society of the Spectacle. There are people on Twitter okay. talking about it. And mm-hmm. uh, I started reading it, and it really puts into perspective a lot of the um, – a lot of the more like neoliberal things that have come after Marx, right? So like 
when we talk about on the pod, like what Mark's talking about in Capital, well, Guy Debord kind of talks about like society and like how capital turns society into a spectacle. And okay. I think it's really, it's a really great, I, I'm not through it yet. I'm still reading it. It's an incredible read, uh, especially in our current, like uh, our current political climate with the, uh, the debate and everything. But I wanted to, I, they, the listeners, if they listened to the last episode, already got my opinions on the debate, but I wanted to get your opinion on the debate, if you saw any of it, or if you saw some clips, or what you thought. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't watch a single second of it. Um, That's, I, saw, I saw that it had 73 million viewers, which is like the most viewed television program all year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I read that it was a lot lower I think it was like three thirty million lower than a Clinton and Trump. Um, but I just, I just saw, I do what I do, what I do with a lot of sports, and that's just I catch the highlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, and it's it's funny because I was listening to another podcast. Uh, it was like a, it's a, it's a retired wrestler that does some podcasts, and he's he he's super political now. He's kind, he kind of reminds me of Jesse Ventura. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know Jesse Ventura? He was the governor of Minnesota. Jesse Ventura. Uh, yeah. Um, he kind of reminds me of him. He, he was in wrestling and then he retired and he ran, I think he ran in Tennessee or something, or he ran for like Memphis mayor or something like that. But mm-hmm. anyway, he, he's got a, a political slash wrestling podcast. So I was listening to it and he was like, uh, the, he says the debate today, or he said the debate that's coming up, this was before the debate came out. Uh, he said, it's going to have. He says that wrestling fans and people that are uh, are have been watching wrestling are now like cable network news junkies. Uh-huh. And he says because there are there's a better narrative and there's a better story and there's a lot more just better entertainment in our current political climate and the stupid you know network uh, network game bullshit that they do. And he's like this debate is probably gonna. He, he predicted it would draw over a hundred million, but he he was kind of close, but. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he just put out his episode on it today, but I haven't listened to it yet. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I saw some highlights where, <laughs> um, I saw some highlights where, uh, I mean, this is going to sound vague cause it sounds like most of the, it sounds like most of the debate, but I just saw where that I, I saw where they asked him to denounce white supremacy and, uh, and then he was just, <laughs> he was just like, uh, okay, proud boys, you know, just stand back. Uh, standby. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, I, I that was that was probably the one of the highlights I saw the most. And I saw where I saw uh, most of my Twitter feed now, honestly, is just like because making fun of Trump became too easy. And so it's so most of your Twitter feed just me. <laughs> most of my Twitter feed is you and posting menace and uh, and and just people shitting on Biden. <laughs> so I'm like, it's, why is it so much more fun to sh- to make fun of Biden? I guess because. It's like he's tr- like we know he's trying, you know, he's like he's trying not to be Trump. And that's just that's his whole gimmick. But I just I it was just watching him for some reason was more entertaining than uh, watching Donald because Donald was just being Donald. You know, I didn't expect anything less from Trump in that. But but for some reason, I'm always more fascinated with what's going to come out of Joe Biden's mouth. <laughs> and yeah. So, and so um, I can't remember what they were talking about, but uh uh, Joe said something about like when uh, when are they going to pass like a uh, or when are, are we when are we going to get more economic support for the uh, the coronavirus aid and and uh, Joe was something so when are we going to get more when are we going to get more funding you you going to do that in July and I'm like July just <laughs> like what the fuck is he talking about it's uh, um, I saw that but honestly that that's all I took from it I'm sure it was a a train wreck and. What about a uh, inshallah? <laughs> maybe maybe that? that's what it was. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Where he, is, he said inshallah, and somebody tried to he, say, he said, yeah, he's like, when are we going to see your tax yeah, returns? Inshallah. Yeah. inshallah. <laughs> Someone's like, thought, yeah, <laughs> comrade, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, comrade yeah. Biden, welcome to the welcome <laughs> to the Brotherhood of Islam. Fucking great. But no, that's that's all I saw of it was I saw the fallout on Twitter. That's that's oh. all I needed to see. I will say before we get started on Capitol. Um, uh, just to talk a little bit, um, completely unrelated, but uh, I don't know if you saw today, but there's a lot of um, Chrissy Teigen. Um, yeah, yeah. We, 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 I wanted to mention something about that, but I was like, I don't know if we should really 
jump into that. And uh, but you you go. What, what were you gonna say about it? And then I'll, then I'll put out my thoughts. <laughs> um, I think I was telling I was telling the the fellas about it. I was on the the podcast group chat, and I was like saying that uh, I, I think it's kind of um, I thought nothing is sacred anymore. Like nothing is sacred. Oh, and yeah, nothing no, is no, like no. whatever because um, she uh she she immediately posted a picture and then like right afterwards and then posted on it on twitter so it's like it it under like it makes sense like you post a picture of like your newborn baby and you're happy about it and everything and it makes sense like you would say something right but like having this like picture right after was kind of disgusting it's way too theatrical yeah it's that was my problem with it that was that's all i was gonna say about it is i i I mean i would i would but the jokes are hilarious Oh yeah, they are. And it's just, it's so, it's so weird. Cause we know there's this strange, there's just, just this strangeness about that family. And like, mm-hmm. and we know they're up there. With, <laughs> Cole, we, we, Cole yeah. said confirmed pedophile. So <laughs> God, <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> we saw, I mean, yeah, like there's just this weirdness about it. Cause we know how deeply rooted they are into the you know, fucking liberal Hollywood pedophiles, you know? So, um, I have no doubts that they have some sort of connection to that whole uh, that whole movement and, yeah. and operation. I have no doubt there's they have some kind of connection to it. So the fact that like and someone also I, I fell into the rabbit hole a bit and I saw like she never someone pointed this out but like she, she she in her photos and this was like deeply analytical and it was I was like I can't believe I'm falling into this but here I go they she, they they said for for somebody like Chrissy, uh, being the way she is and being uh, the 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 family you know oriented person that she is, it was weird that she didn't really post a lot about that that unborn baby. You know, like usually, I just feel like there was there, for her uh, second kid. I mean, she was like she was posting her her fucking stomach like every week, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was weird that they were a little more hush hush about this kid. Yeah, and I mean that correct. That's kind of weird, her, right? Correct opinion yeah. haver from the Fed Post, like he was the first one. Like when she posted the picture of her pregnant, he said fake baby. Oh, he said there was a fake <laughs> baby and fake pregnancy. And then he like when the, when she said, "Hey, I lost it" or whatever, he was like, he posted a, that emoji with the eye. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! It's like, but damn. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely don't get why you need to post a picture with that. I mean, it's pure theatrical, and I mean. They they'll find a way. It's kind of like the Kardashians, where they're like, there's they're really they really know their way to work. They really know how to work their way into a headline. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like that's just right up her alley to do some shit like this with John. So um, yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of disgusted by it. Even though like you know we would get <laughs> we would get we would get an earful for having any kind of a opinion other than that. Um. So I guess we'll just talk. We'll start talking about capital. Um. um did you, did you did I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm, I mean, I'm not like I'm not unprepared, but like chapter nine, <laughs> I, I I started on chapter nine. I started on. Yeah, I don't think I actually remember going through it because I don't remember anything from chapter nine. But like I I, I marked up the shit out of chapter seven and eight, but mm-hmm. I just never got around to reading chapter nine. So so chapter seven and eight, I'm all yours. But you may have to hold my hand on chapter nine. Okay, that's fine. I uh, I didn't do a lot of marking either, so um. Okay. I did read it, but I didn't do a lot of uh, marking on it. Um, very, in fact, probably the entire chapter I might have marked like maybe one page. But yeah, um, okay. okay. So uh, we we read part three, the production of absolute surplus value. We mm-hmm. read chapters seven, eight, and nine. Chapter seven is titled "The Labor Process and the Process of Producing Surplus Value," mm-hmm. and section one is "Process or the Production of Use Values." So. Um, he talks about in this section the fact that um, the fact he says the fact that the production of use values or goods is carried on under the control of a capitalist and on his behalf does not mm-hmm. alter the general character of that production. Mm-hmm. Um, labor it is in the first place a process in which both man and nature participate. Yeah, I like um, the his. It, it's always always find it remarkable, and uh, and I haven't read a lot of philosophers, so I don't know how like 
I don't know how connected they are with their with I don't know how connected they are to nature being in a lot of their ideology, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like I like when I like when when Marx gets uh, brings in Mother Nature into the equation. Um, you know, I think I think he expects us to kind of. Do you think he kind of underst- he Do you think he expects us to understand that nature? Nature is finite. I mean, he does. He does. I mean, earlier in the book, he does say like all all things in nature are finite. You know, mm-hmm. and like Mother Nature has to be put into the equation uh, in a uh, and, and even in the process of labor, he's going to say that nature is included because nature is one of those resources that is used in uh, the labor process, whether that be a resource of the earth or that would be one of our natural resources to uh, to create to be laborious. You know, he says that's one. Uh, he doesn't outright say it, but um, oh yeah, no, he kind of does outright say it. He says he sets in motion the natural forces which belong to his own body, his arms, his legs, his head, his hands, in order to appropriate the materials of nature in a form adapted to his own needs. Mm-hmm. So, um, so one of my, uh, well, one of, and it's not. I mean, it's, I don't think it's difficult to interpret this part of it, but he's just saying labor. Labor is the natural, the nature, the natural part of our body that we that we just have. Like everyone, unless you're like you know disabled to a certain, well even even if you are disabled, you've got a certain way to labor yourself. You know, whether mm-hmm. you have the head, he says the head, the arms, uh, hands, and legs. You know, um, it's just it's just part of your nature. Um, so and he says that pretty he says that pretty quickly into this chapter, and that's where I pulled that from. Is actually it's my second paragraph where he talks about. He says, uh, labor is first of all a process between man and nature. Yeah, that's and that's I think that's a good way to st- that's a good way to, to to set the groundwork on this chapter. And he's going to talk a lot about that. He says, um, we presuppose labor in a form that stamps it as exclusively human. So yeah. uh, in this, he's talking about how um, he says that there are so so a spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee puts to shame many an architect in the construction of her cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, but what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is this, that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality. So mm-hmm. other, other animals, I think is what he's trying to say, do labor in a certain thing. But like he says that we, we like as a people presuppose that labor is exclusively human because humans have um, humans are thinking animals. Yeah. We're a thinking animal that created an economy. <laughs> right and it created a it created a uh, created a market essentially uh, uh you know commodities we we as a conscious and thinking uh species we uh, our product the products of our labor are different than the products of an animal's labor you know mm-hmm. yeah um, he um he talks about um so so he talks about the exertion of bodily organs in labor he says the process demands that during the whole operation, the workman's will be steadily in consonance with his purpose. This means close attention. The less he is attracted by the nature of the work and the mode in which it is carried on, and the less, therefore, he enjoys it as something which gives play to his bodily and mental powers, the more close his attention is forced to be. So I think this one, this part resonated with me pretty, pretty strongly. You're, uh, you have to, you have to force your, like if you're at a job that you don't like, or if you're, if you, if you don't enjoy the exertion of your, your mental powers or your bodily powers, then force yourself more to pay more attention to the labor, which it just ends up, mm-hmm. it's a vicious cycle, which ends up just exhausting you more. Right. Um, still early on in this chapter, there was a part that stuck with me, and it's where he talks about the instruments of labor. Um, and he, he's going to touch on that in the next chapter too, but we'll get there. But where he talks about like their fixed, uh, fixed capital part of that becomes a part of labor. Mm-hmm. And that's like, and that's like he said, the land, the, the tractors or whatever you, whatever, whatever is needed in part of that labor process. Um, but he goes on to talk about instruments of labor and how even adding an instrument of labor doesn't, uh, I don't want to, he doesn't say reduce the labor, but I kind of took it as what he's trying to, what he said is, what he would be saying today is that uh, the adding an instrument of our labor, like uh, a tool or something, uh, doesn't. Uh, it, what what it helps him explain this is you're looking at it through a capitalist's eyes. Mm-hmm. So if you're a cat, if you're a capitalist, um, a tool makes somebody's labor easier. Mm-hmm. And so in a capitalist 
in a capitalist mindset, you're not going to value, you're not going to put as much value uh, if you're like a competitive value on somebody's labor if their job feels easier, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like creating the myth of unskilled labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he, he clarifies and he, he puts it into perspective that an instrument doesn't reduce, you know, your, your labor value. And the use right, it might not, it might reduce your physical labor that you have that day, but right. it doesn't reduce your your value because you're still. Um, and he talks right. about this later. We'll we'll talk about this, but he still your the laborer still puts his value right. in that object. Yeah, like that instrument that is used in labor, that commodity, it has a use value that is being used. It's super meta, but it's being used to create commodities with use value. You know, so like it's just you know part of part of. Uh, basic economics of marketing and um yeah the commodity yeah. It, itself will have a use value for someone right and it has an exchange right. value on the market of however many dollars right. pounds whatever but um yeah the 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 creation of tools and the fact that people use tools to make labor easier doesn't right. necessarily reduce the the value the labor value right. that uh the worker puts in yeah, uh, he, he, I, I marked this right here. He says, in the labor process, therefore, man's activity via the instruments of labor affects, via the labor, affects an alternation, no, an alteration in the object of labor, which was intended from the outset. Um, mm-hmm. The process is extinguished in the product. So, like, and, and he's basically saying the product of that labor uh, shouldn't, it shouldn't be valued upon what kind of, what kind of instruments were used in the creation, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and then he goes on to say, "Laborers become bound up in its object. The labor has been objectified. The object has been worked on. What on what on the side of the worker appeared in form of unrest now appears on the side of the product in the form of being." Mm-hmm. So that's 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 a pretty good uh, dense outlook on it. Um, and also highlighted where he says, "If we look at the whole process from the point of view of its result." The product, it is plain that both the instrument and the object of labor are means of production and that the labor itself is productive labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that stuff. And there, there's a little footnote in this edition um, where he says productive labor. He means uh, the little footnote that says uh, productive labor is the method of determining what is productive labor. Um, or no, he says the method of determining what is productive labor from standing the standing point of the simple labor process is by no means sufficient to cover the capitalist process of production. Mm-hmm. Um, so early on, I, that's that's kind of what stuck with me. And then I did, I kind of, I don't want to read the whole paragraph, but yeah, there, he basically goes through that whole spiel and uh, the paragraph about the instruments of labor and, uh, you know, he talks about pipes and tubs and baskets that are used in the creation of commodities and stuff and those items themselves are part of the process um i think actually i I do want to so i want to cut in a little bit and talk about um uh so 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 he defines here he defines he talks about the means of production and he Mm -hmm. says if we examine the whole process from the point of view of its result the product it is plain that both the instruments and the subject of labor are means of production and that the labor itself is productive labor, like you were saying earlier. But also I want to talk about mm-hmm. this part. So I'm, I'm jumping around just a little bit, but um, <clears throat> he says a machine which does not serve the purpose of labor is useless. In addition, it falls, it falls prey to the destructive influence of natural forces, iron rusts and wood rots, yarn with which we neither weave nor knit is cotton wasted. Living labor must seize upon these things and rouse them from their death sleep change them for mere possible use values into real and effective ones. Bathed in the fire of labor, appropriate as part and parcel of labor's organisms and organism, and as it were, made alive for the performance of their functions in the process. They are in in truth consumed, but consumed with a purpose. As uh, let's see, as elementary constituents of new use values, of new products, ever ready as means of subsistence for individual consumption or as means of production for some new labor process. So in this part, like we were saying, the the fact that labor is put into the machine, the means of production by the labor is what actually creates the use value of the, um, the thing, oh, yeah. right? The, right? the commodity itself. Um, let's see. So 
he talks about the labor process. Like he starts talking about that. Um, like he, so he defines the means of production, right? The means of production are like anything that's used in the production, whether that be nature, whether that be, um, right. Like, so if I'm, if I'm a farmer and I hire farm hands and the means of production is the, the ground that, it, that nature itself provides, but I own. So I'm allowing the labor laborers to put their value into farming. Right. So I take their, surplus value which we'll get to in just a minute but um so he says uh the the capitalist he consumes labor power he says first the laborer works under control of the capitalist to whom his labor belongs the capitalist taking good care that the work is done in a proper manner and that the means of production are used with intelligence so that there is no unnecessary waste of raw material and no wear and tear of the implements beyond what is necessarily caused by the work Secondly, the product is the property of the capitalist and not that of the laborer, its immediate producer. So mm -hmm. here he's talking about the fact that uh, uh, the, the, so the laborer, when he goes to market, he sells his labor to the capitalist, right? The person who owns the means of production, mm -hmm. right? And then the capitalist um, makes sure that the, the laborer is working, right? I mean, you've had... Everyone's had jobs before, so you know right. that like bosses make sure that you work and work right. in an effective, quote unquote, manner, mm -hmm. um, right? Which in America means uh, if you're at a grocery store that and you could sit down, they don't want you to sit down. You have to stand right. to be working, apparently. But uh, yeah, it, it, so they don't want any uh, unnecessary waste of raw material and no wear and tear in the implements. They don't want you to like, you know, beat the hell out of the instruments of, of labor. Mm -hmm. um, and here, I think this what he's talked about, like how the how the labor process, um, how the capitalist consumes labor is interesting, where the product is the property of the capitalist and not that of the laborer. So the laborer right. is the immediate producer of the um, the commodity, but the capitalist owns the commodity. Right. So that just feeds into Marx's theory of alienation, right? Oh yeah. So um, the worker's alienated it, from his labor. Yeah, yeah, and it's just, God, and it just really, like, it really it hits home how late-stage capitalism we are here um, because of just, because of how alienated we are from, well, just think, I mean, when you think about big businesses and when you just think about businesses in general, they tend to be associated with, they tend to be associated and owned, even though, you know, the amounts of people that collectively work under Amazon or, I mean, that's just the first thing that came to my mind, but, you know, Amazon or just any big company in general, usually the capitalist at the head of it is, it's like, it's just by, you know, the, the norms of capitalism, that's just like, it's his, it's all his, like even, mm -hmm. even the, the, the work, the workers and their, and their products and the product mm -hmm. of their labor. Like it, it's just all associated and it's accredited to like the head honcho at the, at the top, you know, like, um, and some people will like, I, I, I keep using Vince McMahon. I, I think, I think Vince McMahon is just the ultimate capitalist in a sense. Cause I come <laughs> back to him a lot, but just because he even like morally and like, he'll go out of his way to be like super capitalist. Um, but, uh, he, uh, we talked about it in the last episode briefly, but like he, when I told you about the wrestlers, uh, did I tell you about that? About the the wrestlers where they they had to stop all their third party stuff because mm -hmm. yeah, Vince McMahon because because Vince McMahon basically said he owns them and they signed mm -hmm. a contract that says that, and it was funny because he didn't he didn't feel the need to express that because they'd been doing stuff for years like they'd been doing side income and they've been doing podcasts and they've been doing streaming services for a long time. I mean for years now. Do you remember? Because we went to MomoCon in Atlanta and we saw uh, we saw Xavier Woods, mm -hmm. and he he's got a YouTube channel, and he had a YouTube channel. But it turns out I didn't know this, but WWE bought bought that channel, so now like basically it's under it's all under WWE's copyright protection and everything. So, yeah. but before before that, you know, you know that actually perfectly that actually perfectly encapsulates the problem is. Vince McMahon saw that and was like, no, that's mine <laughs> because, mm -hmm. because you, you work under my name. You're using Xavier Woods, which isn't your real name. You know, that's the WWE name. You're using that. Mm -hmm. So 
me being the capitalist, you're, that that's mine. You, you, what's you, what's yours is mine, and right. I get to decide what and I get to decide what happens to it. Even though his um, personality and his work, his labor, if you will, is the one that is actually the, is. Uh, the value producing <laughs> substance, right? Uh, even though, right. yeah, it's like his, his face. <laughs> yeah. So so I think he. Um, I, I don't know where he says this. I think he might say this later on. But essentially, um, the biggest thing that, that Marx talks about in Capital. A lot of times is that uh, uh, the the capitalist will provide the means of production, and instead of taking like the money that like it, we're going through capital and we're dissecting it, but I think Richard Wolff he's an economist, he's a Marxist economist, and he has a great um, he has a great video on YouTube that I think everyone should check out, and it's just it's him talking about Marxist economics and him saying like how economics works in a capitalist system and he's like okay so if you have a chair right and he's like you have a chair and he's like okay the capitalist puts forward the the money right so he buys the wood he buys the tools to make the chair right but he the capitalist doesn't know how to make the chair so he right. buys it he, he says okay let's just say that in this economy the chairs were a chair is worth 200 bucks right a nice right. wooden chair is worth 200 bucks so the capitalist will pay for the wood he'll pay for the tools and what will happen is that he will uh put forth a hundred dollars right so everything used up at the end of the day the marketing the whatever is worth one hundred dollars right so the the laborer will come in to build the chair and so the laborer, the chair, the, the, the wood and the tools and whatever may be worth something, but they're not worth the $200 that the chair is worth, right? They're worth $100. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what will happen is the laborer will put in $100 worth of labor and produce oh. this chair that's worth $200, right? Right. So um, the thing about it is, is that the uh, the... So, so he'll put in a hundred dollars, but the capitalist, instead of just saying, okay, well, you know, if fair is fair. I put in a hundred dollars, you put in a hundred dollars. So you get your $100 and I get my $100, right? Well, the capitalist wouldn't be making any money then, right? So what the capitalist does is he says, okay, well, since the chair is $200 and I sold it for $200, I get 175 and you get 25. So what happens is the capitalist steals his labor value, right? Because that guy's labor, because the, the wood and everything is only worth $100. The, the labor itself incorporated is worth $100. So he's right. $75 of that $100 that yeah. should technically go to labor. Yeah, right? Exactly. I think that leads us into section two, where he starts talking about the production of surplus value, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the thing is that he wants to... So it says the capitalist wants to has two objects in view. In the first place, he wants to produce a use value that has a value in exchange, that is to say, an article destined to be sold, a commodity. Mm-hmm. And secondly, he desires to produce a commodity whose value shall be greater than the sum of the values of the commodities used in its production, that is, of the means of production and the labor power that he purchased with his good money in the open market. His aim mm-hmm. is to produce not only a use value, but a commodity also, not only use value, but value. Not only value, but at the same time, surplus value. So mm-hmm. he wants to. So the capitalist wants to. It, it seems like a, a like a a, a to B process, right? And even though it's like yeah. an A to Z process with a bunch of steps in between, mm-hmm. he wants to produce a use value that can be sold, that can be exchanged on the free markets, that is a commodity. So he wants to produce value itself, right? right. Which is the money. But then you, he, yeah. he not only wants to produce the value, he wants to produce surplus value. So he gains money in the interim. Yeah, it's always that that makes me that makes me think of the capitalist formula that we talked about last episode, where it's like uh, money, commodity, money. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's money into a commodity solely for its purpose to be turned into more money. Um, yeah, he, he uh, the, one little section or one little sentence I highlighted that kind of ties into that is uh, he says value exists only in use values. It exists in things. If we leave aside its purely symbolic representation and tokens, 
Um, and then he says in uh, parentheses in my edition, man himself viewed merely as the physical existence of labor power mm-hmm. is a natural object, a thing, although a living conscious thing. And labor is the physical manifestation of that power. Right. Um, therefore, so, an article loses its use value. It also loses its value. You know, it's money. It's 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 ability to it's money value. Yeah. So uh, Marx hits upon here something that um, so so Marx is a materialist, right? Like, yeah. but but the thing is that like value itself is kind of this ephemeral um this thing that he brings down to the material um because it, it, the value of itself is in the material right it's not in this like ephemeral outer space nowhere that you can't reach right, right. well the thing about it is is that like richard wolf says the the tools and the the wood itself is only worth 100 bucks and right. then value that's generated by the laborer which is 100 bucks um, to create the chair, which is worth two hundred bucks, mm-hmm. the 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 labor it's the labor himself or herself or whatever brings the value to the object, right? Because nature or uh, raw materials or the means of production, all of them are good, fine, and dandy, but they don't mean shit if you don't have a commodity, right? Right. Even even the the even though the, the means of production itself could be a commodity, right? Like he and Marx even pointed out, the end goal is to create a commodity that has, like you said, a use value for for somebody that they'll that they'll mm-hmm. buy it. So, yeah. Um, let's see. I have a couple of things highlighted. Um, he talks about um, he talks about absorbed labor. And how the commodity will absorb the labor itself, like we were saying. I mean, it's just a better way of saying what what I just said, right? Right. Well, like how it when we I think absorb is a good word because that's really what our labor is reduced to is the it's it's uh, not not the value or not the um, it's just reduced to the the product that it creates. <clears throat> And so in that way, I think absorption is a good word. Um, kind of like, uh, actually, I think I remember, I remember reading a quote where he, well, no, we said, we said it in a, uh, we said it earlier. I don't remember if it was in the last episode, but he, he compared it to like, it, it uh, like a leech. Like, you know how a leech sucks and absorbs, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's like, like parasitic or like vampiric that you, it sucks the life and then it reduces you. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, another, you can apply that same idea here. And that uh, our the the commodity, you know, absorbs uh, the labor itself, and that uh, the the commodity is what sucks our actual our energy cons our energy consuming labor. The commodity is what sucks that out of us in the labor process. You know, um, the commodity that we're creating. This is um, I. I uh... There, there was this person on Twitter that was saying uh, that um, I hate when people talk about like podcasts, right? And they say like, oh, Marx, you know, oh, the most Marxist thing you can do is produce a podcast or whatever, <laughs> right? And this person said, well, Marx was a pithy little, like a, he, he was a catty bitch. He would absolutely love podcasts, right? They're like, I hate when people talk about that because, and I, and I said like, you know, we're reading Capital and, and I I read this tweet before this part, but this is uh, perfect. Here's a little bit of. Uh, uh huh. I'm hitting him. Okay. Yeah. I'm here. Uh, so here's a little bit of pithy bitchy marks. You ready? Okay, go ahead. Our capitalist who is at home in his vulgar economy exclaims, "Oh, but I advanced my money for the express purpose of making more money." He says the way to hell is paved with good intentions, and he might just have easily have intended to make money without producing at all. Oh yeah, that's where I, I remember reading that. Uh, but he he, I mean, he basically goes off. Hold on. Uh, yeah, he, he said. I, remember, I think I think you and I highlighted that exact same thing. Let him therefore console himself with the reflection that virtue is its own reward. But no, Jesus he becomes importunate. He says the yarn is of no use to me. I produced it for sale. In that case, let him sell it, or still better, let him for the future produce only things for satisfying his personal wants. 
a remedy that his physician McCulloch has already prescribed as infallible mm -hmm. against an epidemic of overproduction. <laughs> God, fucking savage. Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, uh, he, on my version it says, uh, uh, the capitalist makes threats. He will not be caught napping again. In future, he won't be buy the commodities and markets instead of manufacturing them himself. Yeah, but yeah, well, I say the same thing, but just in different ways. Um, I've got some footnotes on where he says, uh, <laughs> "Have I myself not worked? Have I not performed <laughs> the labor of superintendence and of overlooking the spinner? And does not this labor too create value?" His overlooker and his manager try to hide their smiles. <laughs> what a pithy bitch um uh, so, so there, there there's a there's a footnote after the after the whole uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and you might as well just have intended to make money without producing at all there's a footnote on that in my edition um it says uh from 1844 to 1847 he withdrew part of his capital from productive employment in order to throw it away in railway speculations so also during the American Civil War, he closed his factory and turned the workers onto the street in order to gamble on the Liverpool Cotton Exchange. Jesus, <laughs> he's such a he's such a he's such a bitchy mm. bitchy writer. It's so funny. I like yeah. how he just constantly is crapping on these these capitalists, right? The good capitalists, as he calls them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he says. Um, he, he says. Uh, that the capitalist expect, expects a special service from labor power. Right. That labor power has a specific use value, um, which, which as a commodity it possesses, of being a source not only of value, but of more value than it has itself. So in, in uh, he, he says he acts uh, in mm -hmm. accordance with the eternal laws of the exchange of commodities. So he's saying that, like, like again, you know, the labor, you know, produces more value than he's like, quote unquote, worth. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and also, he talks about um, how commodities. Let's see, he he talks about how uh, commodities um, incorporate living labor into their dead substance. He says the capitalist at the same time converts value, i.e. past materialized in dead labor, into capital, into value, big with value, a live monster that is fruitful and multiplies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did, did, your, uh, did your version talk about uh, – so did you, did you understand his interpretation of like – and maybe I wasn't uh, – and maybe I wasn't thinking about this in the right – frame of thinking but um i don't i don't quite understand what his conclusion about uh um like there was a there's variable capital and i think i was looking at it through a business school sense because um it's just basic i mean we learn this stuff in uh in business and i guess going to a business school in a capitalist in a capitalist system you know is essentially just you learn how to be a capitalist um, yeah, so, he would, you would be what he considers a like a like if you were to take all the teachings from your business school, right, and you yeah. were to become like a professor, you become what he calls a bourgeois economist. Yeah, um, basically, it's just he he touches on what constant capital is and variable ca so, capital is, and you can, it's basically just like you have your you have your constants in 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 the in the labor process, and mm -hmm. then you have your variables. And he even he it's crazy that he wrote this so long ago and it can be so effectively applied today about variable like and he uses variable as in like different types of labor or the amount of labor used. So um, he basically he's basically like saying, you know, the laborer, depending on how much work they do, that's the variable is some may work more than needed. Or they go out of their way. He said they'll go out of their way to work more than that's needed, or they won't work as much. And he says that's in a capitalist uh, economic. That's that's like the uh, it's just it's just one of the variable things that if you you pay somebody based on how much they do, and that's just one of the variables of running of running a you know a capitalist economics. And 
that's even like see that can even be in a micro that's a microscopic thing uh for a uh uh it's a micro business practice you know uh paying people what they work and that's your variable expense and then you have your constant expenses which is just your land you know that's a constant or things that are always there um the land the building the infrastructure and stuff like that but the one variable and i don't i'm he kind of fleshed out uh, the different degrees of and ethicalities of variable labor, but the labor, uh, looking at it as a material thing, is the variable, you know. Yeah, I think um. So so that's chapter eight, right? It's constant capital, right. and variable capital. Right. Um. <clears throat> so I think what, and I'm trying to find it. I've highlighted a couple of things, but I don't think I see it where he specifically makes the. Uh, uh, he talks about the difference between the variable and the mm-hmm. constant. I think what he talks about is that um, the very like, let's see. So, lay. I think labor is actually the constant because even mm-hmm. I think it says that like even when he uses um the labor uses like materials or like the means of production or whatever his like labor is, is still putting value. Cause like you still add value like as a labor to a product. Mm. But I think the, the variable capital is the, the changing of like market conditions. Right. Is that, am I reading that wrong or is that. Yeah. Changing, changing market conditions or like changing, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, I'm try. I look at it like micro, micro, you know, and like a, I just use like a small business example, you know. Um, you pay. I mean, depending on where you are, like market conditions, like. Do, do you, by that does he mean uh, you'll pay you'll you, if you're the capitalist the the labor uh, you pay the labor like the depending on where you are in the world. And like the cost of living and the material conditions, like you're saying that they get paid based on that. Yeah, I I'm trying to see. Or what is that mean. is that what your interpretation of what you're trying to say is? I think I, I think I've severely underestimated this section because I, I do have I have highlighted stuff, but most of it's um I, I find mm. that typically what I will highlight and what I'll go back to that he says. Let's see. Um, let's see. It is up. I mean, I, I kind of struggled with it too. Yeah, I mean, th- I highlight this huge passage talking about productive labor. Uh, while productive labor is changing the means of production into constituent elements of a new product, mm-hmm. their value undergoes a, I don't know this word, metempsychosis. It deserts the consumed body to occupy a newly created one, but this transmigration takes place, as it were, behind the back of the laborer. Is oh, okay unable to add new labor to create new mm-hmm. value without at the same time preserving old values. And this because the labor he adds must be of a specific useful kind. And he cannot do work of a useful kind without mm-hmm. employing products as the means of production of a new product and thereby transferring their value to the new product. The property, therefore, which labor power in action, living labor, possesses a preserving value at the same time that it adds to it is a gift of nature which costs the laborer nothing but which is very advantageous to the capitalist in as much as it preserves the existing value of his capital. So long as trade is good, the capitalist is too much absorbed in money grubbing to take notice of this gratuitous gift of labor. A violent interruption in the labor process by a crisis makes him sensitively aware of it. Yeah. So, yeah. You don't, yeah. You don't realize, you don't realize how exploited you are until it happens, I guess. Well, you don't, you don't realize the, the capitalist doesn't realize how much he exploits until Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think is what Marx is saying in there. Yeah, blinded, blind, bl- blinded by the the formula, you know, the the greed and the and the grind kind of blind you to, uh, you know, it it takes away your it almost it fucks up your ethical compass, you know, like yeah, you, you don't realize that you're stepping on people to get to where you need to go and get the kind of money you need. So the the labor what he does, uh, I think the reason he is constant capital is because the labor labor at, takes value right mm-hmm. 
takes the value of the materials and then not only preserves the value, but adds more value to it, right? Whereas the variable mm-hmm. capital, um, you know, such as like different like products or whatever, like in the marketplace itself, will we'll, it's variable capital because mm-hmm. even I think he says this too. I think he says this in the next section. Even though the labor adds um, value to it, right? Uh, uh, it it doesn't diminish the like he. If the capitalist were to say, okay, I, I want this chair. This chair is, you know, supposed to be worth two hundred dollars, but the market's on chair immediately crashes, and the chair is only worth fifty dollars now, right? Yeah, there you go. So, um, the laborer still put a hundred dollars worth of value into it because market conditions being what they're supposed to be, the chair would be worth two hundred bucks, right? Right. right. So. What happens is if the capitalist is an industrial, like an industrious capitalist, what he'll do is he'll wait until that that market comes around again and then sell his chair for the two hundred dollars. Right. So the variable capital in that sense is the is the commodity itself uh, due to market fluctuations. Okay. He says that in the next one. Yeah, I'm on board. And so, all right. So uh, that I think that's a. Chapter nine, which is the rate of surplus value, the degree of exploration of labor power. Um, okay, so this one is, this section is very dense. So we'll just unpack some of the stuff. So capital, mm-hmm. right? He even says capital C. He gives us a, an equation, right? Yeah, C so capital, yeah. It represents the portion that has become constant capital. Uh, uh, the, so lowercase c represents the portion that has become constant capital and v the portion that has become variable capital. So capital C, right, ca- mm. uh, capital is constant capital plus variable capital. He says, so for example, if 500 pounds is the capital advance, its components may be such that 500 pounds equals 410 pounds constant plus 90 pounds variable when the process of production is finished, we get a commodity whose value equals, right, constant and variable plus surplus, where surplus, surplus is the surplus right. value. Yeah. Or taking our former figures, the value of this commodity may be 410 pounds constant plus 90 variable plus 90 surplus. The original capital has now changed from um, capital, like he, he just says from capital to capital, from 500 pounds to 590 five, pounds. 590, yeah. The difference is a, a surplus uh, value of 90 pounds since the value of the constituent elements of the product is equal to the value of the advanced capital. It is mere tautology to say that the excess of the value of the product over the value of its constituent elements is equal to the expansion of the capital advance or to the surplus value produced. And he, he looks at, he says, let's look at this a little more closely. Um, uh, he, he talks about how uh, the, the instruments of labor transfer to the production only a fraction of its value, while the re- remainder of that value continues to reside in those instruments. Since this remainder mm. plays no part in the formation of value, we may at present leave it on to one side. Okay. So, the, I mean, yeah, it's... I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't have a math mind, but I, I mean, it's not really, it's not really math. I mean, I get, I get what he's, what he's no, it's, uh, it's definitely, no, it's definitely math. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of math. Um, mm-hmm. he talks about how, um, so, so the value of raw material, auxiliary material, machinery worn away, um, mm-hmm. is equal to the constant capital. So, right. so, um, yeah. And he talk he talks about, um, he, go, he just keeps going on like this, this type of stuff. I mean, um, uh, he talks about the, the difficulty caused by the original form of the variable capital, but I, I like this part. This is one of the one things that I really got out of this section from the point of view then of the, of capital's production, the whole process appears as spontaneous variation of the originally constant value which is transformed into labor power. Both the process and its result appear to be owing to this value. If, therefore, such expressions as 90-pound variable capital or so much self-expanding value appear contradictory, this is only because they bring to the surface a contradict 
a contradiction imminent in capitalist production. Hmm. So um, it, it's weird because like when you're in the, I guess when you're in the thick of it, it seems spontaneous, right? It seems like, right. it right. seems like owning capital produces more capital. But he says that's the contradiction inherent in capitalist production is that owning capital does produce more capital because of the the surplus value that's generated by the mm. laborer. Right? He says this relative right. increase in the value of the variable capital or the relative magnitude of the surplus value, I call the rate of surplus value. And and as I'm just kind of skipping through, yeah, I, I now I see why uh, and this is I'm I'm jumping ahead here, but uh chap our, our next chapter, chapter data is called the working day. Uh-huh. Uh, and now that I'm looking at it, I see where this is going to go because later in this chapter, he starts uh, taking into account an hourly wage or like a, a production formula. Yeah. They, kind of, they basically puts the working day into a formula at the end of this chapter um, where he uses seed, manure, and then wages. It basically makes like an, a, a, a balancing book um, of the, the labor process. So that's really cool. Um I'm just going to have to go back and reread all of this stuff because. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Most of it is just going over my head anyway. So I will say this, and, and I guess we can finish up and then we'll talk about what we thought about the, this section. But uh, mm-hmm. so section three or this this um, part of capital. So section three leads into chapter 10, which is what he's talking about. There's this there's this economist, right, who's uh, he's a political economist from um, from. Um, England, right? right. His, his name is Nassau W. Senior. He says it was in 1836 that he taught, he releases this, uh, um, he releases this, uh, uh, this statement essentially, right? I think he, he writes a statement talking about how there's this, there's this mythical, and this, it, this it's called Senior's Last Hour, right? Is section three. Right. And this professor, right? He talks about how there's this, um, he, he, he writes this pamphlet. And how there's this mythical last hour. So um, the the person's uh, it so so under the it says under the present law, no mill in which persons under 18 years of age are employed can be worked more than 11 and a half hours a day. That is 12 hours for five days in the week and nine on Sunday, right? Or on Saturday, they have Sunday off, right? So so generous, 12 hours, five days, and then nine on Saturday. So this is obviously mm-hmm. Mark is writing at a time when this was completely fine. Um, right. if, if you love not working uh, all these hours, you know, think a think a unionist, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> think a labor union, <laughs> right? <laughs> think a Marxist or a communist, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this guy essentially, and I'm, I'm this is very. There's a lot of numbers, so I'll just like kind of dumb it down to like the dumbest that i can possibly make it um which is pretty dumb but um so this this marx is making fun of this ant uh analysis right mm-hmm. because what he does is he talks about how in so many hours worked right there is th- this uh, this economist this this uh, professor is saying that that they need that extra hour a day mm-hmm. right the last hour because in that extra hour so the capitalist hires them out for uh 11 and a half hours right and in that extra 11th hour they make the rate of profit for the capitalist so what he's saying is that like in those hours work what happens is that the mm. the first five hours i think it is is where yeah is the first five hours the capitalist or the the um the producer or the 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 laborers make up their own wages right so for the first five hours they make wages and then for the next five hours they make back the um the capital that the capitalist produce in the right so then this last hour mark i think mark calls it like this mythical last hour right in this last hour, the the capitalists 
uh, get the money, the surplus value, right? So, but Marx's analysis of it, which is pretty interesting, is that mm -hmm. the capitalist every single hour is adding the surplus value. So if they didn't, if they didn't work 11 and a half hours, if they just worked the 10 hours, right? Mm -hmm. And they would still be putting the surplus value into those 10 hours work because you wouldn't work for a whole hour. Right. Right. So he says that the things themselves, right. The, the, the materials themselves are dead things. They're not alive. They don't hold the value that the, the laborer puts into it. So when the laborer is there working for the 10 hours, he put every single thing that he produces, he's putting his surplus value into. Right. Right, so that's the that's the myth of the longer workday, and and it was more prevalent in Marx's time, obviously. But like, I I, uh, I remember in college, a friend, one of my friends who actually got me into communism, right, who was like, you need to read, you need like I was kind of leaning that way anyway. But like, there was no professor, there's no mythical Marxist professor that got me into communism. Right. No class that ever taught me about Marxism until like this uh, last semester, and I already knew right. everything I had to say yeah. about Marxism. Um, the thing about it is the, this, this friend of mine actually got me into it and I was more kind of more of a shit lib, more of a rad lib, whatever you want to say. But then I became full blown Marxist because he was like, Hey, read the communist manifesto. Like, re like honestly, and all I did was read like a Wikipedia article. Right. Uh -huh. So, I mean, that's as simple as it is, but, but he, yeah. he was telling me. Because I was disenfranchised with my own work, and he was telling me that, did you know that that uh, the eight-hour working day even itself? He said, I, I think it, he said that workers in the U.S. get as much done in like the like if you take a twelve-hour working day, right? Let's just say that if you take a twelve-hour working day, workers get as much done in the first six hours as they will in the last six. So like by that I mean workers will. If you, if you work, they'll work hard enough to where they'll like make up enough profit to, mm -hmm. to, to, for six hours as they would, wouldn't 12, right? Because the 12, they're kind of expanding it out more. They're, they're taking more time. They're more tired, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, especially like the eight hour one was, was the same thing too. Like in an eight hour workday, people get as much done as in a six hour workday. They found when they do these studies, right? So mm -hmm. he even, you know, expanded upon this where Marx talks about the myth of working more time produces more value, which isn't true. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's true insofar as that they also use more value too, right? There's more use value. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's more, there's more, uh, they take the, they take capital that's forward and then they use more of that. So it produces more, more, uh, it produces more value and it also uses more value, right? Right. So that's what, but but he's directly. This last section is him directly um, talking about uh, this this uh, this professor who back in the day who was talking about this this mythical right this mythical eleven and a half hour five days a week and then the nine hour on Saturday how they how the the manufacturers needed that or they wouldn't be able to um, right. wouldn't be able to survive essentially. Okay, so he just kind of yeah that's. It's got me. It's got me thinking back to, uh, well, you know, the the industrial the industrial boom, and thinking about all of the crazy amount of work and just uh, how how quickly we've uh, we've progressed, like uh, materially, and how mm -hmm. that was basically that quick that insane boom of uh, of material change was really like on the backbone of insanely exploited labor, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, that really definitely puts things into perspective. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, they, I didn't expect him to get all, I didn't expect him to get all formulaic on me again, or I didn't, I definitely, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't on the right train of thought at the time of reading this to follow that kind of, uh, to follow that kind of thinking. Uh, but, uh, I'm, I, I mean, I guess I'm just gonna have to take my time more with this uh, this second time around because um, I read seven and eight on the on the road down to Las Cruces, so um, I'm probably gonna have to take my time with chapter ten if it's gonna be that formulaic because it looks like it is. It looks like it's gonna he's gonna jump into the working day and he's gonna talk about um, 
a, a worker's he's it looks like he's going to be so microscopic that he's going to basically assign a value a use value to the labor of one labor the labor of one worker for like a day then he's mm. going to go for he's going to go from there so um no we're gonna have a work our work out for us on this next one but it's also i mean on on, on the the old version it was pretty big but i mean on this one it looks on this penguin classics edition it looks huge it's like a oh, it's yeah. like a good chunk so okay so uh i guess we'll like we'll wrap it up or whatever so what did you think of this uh sections that you were reading yeah i think uh uh there's there's a lot of it's it's i guess it was a little too the chapter nine was a little too dense for me mm-hmm. um i didn't have the energy to really process it correctly um mm-hmm. especially since i blew through those first two sections but um yeah the 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 labor process i guess going into going into chapter seven and eight i think i kind of already had put i've put a lot of my own uh uh critical thinking i've done a lot of you know uh synthesizing of the labor process you know uh you, you i i guess I, I was being dialectical on the labor process uh, mm-hmm. before before we even got to this because uh, i i would uh i guess I, I wouldn't expect the labor process section to be here and i and i know it's just to set up you know it's just to put in perspective um, a, the capitalist perspective on the labor process and then uh, the breakdown of it. But I kind of, I guess coming away from chapter eight and seven, I don't think like, I don't think my perspective has changed or like it feels deeper in that sense coming away with this one, because I feel like I, I had already kind of come to these conclusions about Marx is just, just from what I've read online about Marx and mm-hmm. just from what I've read about being just being on uh, left politics and, and scrolling through, uh, uh, you know, long forums and threads all over the, the internet. I've kind of, I've, I think I've already, I'm, I was already a little more familiar with this, the idea of this process and Marx's idea of it, mm-hmm. um, just based off what I've already read. So I'm not coming away with a lot. I'm not coming away with, as I didn't come away with more than I did with the last episode. I mean, I'm coming away a little bit more sharpened on the labor process but i feel like i'm still on the same terms that i have always been when it comes to use value and labor process and alienation of it so um i didn't come away with that much yeah that's fair i I would i would agree with that um i just think that the only thing that you really get in this section is that uh, you get the surplus value and he talks about um basically how you produce surplus value so um but anyway uh, yeah I, i it was all right it was just yeah, it yeah. was really dense. But uh, I guess so. We're actually going to get into more dense shit next time. So next time it's going to be chapter ten, the working day, and then chapter eleven, uh, rate and mass of surplus value. That way we'll end uh, our. Yeah. That way we'll end part three of capital. Yeah, this, so. yeah, and this time around I'll probably hit you up before the episode and probably just like throw okay. some ideas at you. Like, okay. Not, just just so we're on the same page. Like I don't want to. I mean, well, we we are kind of a bubbling through this, but I mean, like it's really dense, and this is it covers so much so quickly um, on some ideas that have just like, you know, it's and I don't I, do, you, do I kind of feel bad because I don't when we come away from the, these episodes, mm-hmm. I feel like are, are we putting it into like well enough terms? Like if I wanted if I wanted my friend or my family to get an idea of my politics, would they be able to listen to this episode and easily catch on? You know, I kind of keep that in mind, and I, I try think, to I I try to keep that in the back of my head. And so I think we're coming away okay. Like I don't I don't think we're like well that's blow, what, blowing through it. You know, that's a I mean that's just reading theory, right? Like you're bound yeah, to yeah. be confused. Theories uh theories uh, always ever revolving right. process. So, but anyway, yeah. uh I guess that that'll be it for this episode, and I guess okay. we will uh we'll see you guys next time. Okay. All right. See ya.